Beethoven Orchestraville. Orchestraville? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Baccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning into episode 89 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. We continue with my unofficial naming of September as Franklin Mint Month, since there is so much good music in this collection, the greatest jazz recordings of all time. And back to the keyboards we go, for a talent whose technical ability was regarded by fellow musicians as extraordinary. So, get ready for the greatest piano virtuoso jazz is known in Volume 89, Tatum on Keys. And back to the included booklet for the song Introductions. T for two. Tatum had recorded in 1932 as part of a piano duo accompanying vocalist Adelaide Hall, but T for Two was made the following year as the first title at the first solo session under his own name. It evidently remained one of his favorite vehicles, for he recorded several other versions later, but this one admirably demonstrates his affinity with Fats Waller. Taken at a leisurely tempo, it first projects the melody and is then embellished with streaming runs and arpeggios that indicate a facility few but Waller possessed. The brief break into double time before the rhythmic emphasis at the end of the last chorus suggests that there was possibly deliberate restraint in the execution of this, his debut recording.
sure you know that melody t for two with just tatum on piano it was written by vincent humans in 1924 that version was recorded january 21st 1933 and it was released on brunswick records okay why this record for this episode when i initially got into listening to jazz i preferred the horns especially trumpet for obvious reasons so i didn't pay a lot of attention to the breadth of talent on the keyboards in the genre that changed many years ago and this box set specifically had a lot to do with that change i now really get into listening to the nuances and styles form and performance i really dig listening to a great stride piano solo i really appreciate the speed or dynamics of a piece and the dexterity needed to pull it off and you're going to hear all of that from art tatum that's why i am sharing this album with you i've got my love to keep me warm derives from a strange session on which tatum overrode the horn players as sydney bichette often did on his soprano saxophone Although the pianist was first and foremost a soloist, he had experience in bands in his youth and was later to show marked ability as an accompanist. But here he displays little consideration for what Lloyd Reese and Marshall Royal are doing on trumpet and clarinet, respectively. The record producer probably wanted his money's worth in terms of pianistic virtuosity, and he got it. Tatum gallops all the way and having momentarily outdistanced the horns, rips off an exciting chorus where the treble incorporates some of Earl Father Hines' favorite devices, brassy octaves, incisive single notes, and each even touches of tremolo. Thank you. 
I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, written in 1937 by Irving Berlin. The band was Art Tatum and his Swingsters, with Marshall Royal on clarinet, Joe Bailey on double bass, Oscar Bradley on drums, Bill Perkins on guitar, Lloyd Reese on trumpet. It was recorded February 26, 1937. It was released on Decca Records. Well, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Various Jazz Masters of the Keyboard, Volume 1. It's on the Franklin Mint Record Society. This record is FM Jazz 1, I'm sorry, 010. It's on the Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time Institute of Jazz Studies Official Archive Collection Series. It is a four-vinyl LP compilation, red box and red vinyl box set. Its country of origin is Sweden. It was released in 1982, and its genre is jazz. Now, we are listening to both sides of record two in the third box set, or record nine, of the entire collection. We will hear seven of the 12 songs on the album. Now, these are the liner notes for Art Tatum from the booklet. Art Tatum was completely blind in one eye and had limited vision in the other when he was born. Perhaps this grave handicap accounted for the development of other senses that helped make him the greatest piano virtuoso jazz has known. To Duke Ellington, he was one of the greatest inimitables. Even today, those who seek hardest to imitate him tend to sound inadequate. Like Waller, the first pianist featured in this box set, who can be heard in volume 32 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl, he acquired a reputation on radio, but he was already well-known through the musician's grapevine when he first went to New York City in 1932. Always addicted to playing in after-hour joints, he was soon introduced to the reigning kings of Harlem piano. Although they were accustomed to intimidating newcomers, he was quickly recognized as a master rather than a mere competitor. His style clearly owed much to Fats Waller's, but other early influence was Lee Sims. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at, uh, sold at on Discogs.com. Highest came in at $45, lowest at $9.99, with an average of $27.93, a median of $23.91, and it was last sold on January 20, uh, 22nd, 2022. eBay had a copy for $10, and Amazon had one for $54.95. Now, my dad's copy is in fair to good condition. It's really clean for the most part. There are some cuts that obviously got played more than others, and you can even hear them a little bit uh, more of the crackliness in this episode. The box itself is in good condition, as are most of the boxes in this set, and the included booklet... Uh, is also in good condition. Uh, by the way, the condition of the records, probably aided by these great plastic uh, sleeves that the records are in. So I think I will value my dad's copy at $15. 
Next, Tiger Rag is a finger buster par excellence. At once a tribute to the past and a challenge to the future. The tempo is absurdly fast. The playing, magnificent. There are volcanic rumblings in the bass to simulate the roaring tiger as trombonists used to do. And enough ideas expertly executed for a dozen recordings. This is just one illustration of why all jazz pianists were and are in awe of Tatum. And there's Tatum soloing on Tiger Rag. While compositional credit for the tune is fuzzy, it is generally credited to the members of the original Dixieland Jazz Band who first recorded and copyrighted it in 1917. It was recorded February 22nd, 1940 and released on Decca Records. Let's learn a little more about this key tickler. Art Tatum, in full Arthur Tatum Jr., was born October 13, 1909, in Toledo, Ohio. He was an American pianist, considered one of the greatest technical virtuosos in jazz. Tatum, who was visually impaired from childhood, displayed an early aptitude for music. At age 13, after starting on the violin, Tatum concentrated on the piano and was soon performing professionally and had his own radio program rebroadcast nationwide while still in his teens. He left Toledo in 1932 and had residencies as a solo pianist at clubs and major urban centers, including New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. In that decade, he settled into a pattern that followed for most of his career. 
paid performances, followed by long after-hours playing, all accompanied by prodigious consumption of alcohol. He was said to be more spontaneous and creative in such venues, and although the drinking did not negatively affect his playing, it did damage his health. He made his most impressive recordings during the 1930s and 40s in New York City using a stride-style left hand and highly varied right-hand stylings. In 1943, he organized a trio with guitarist Tony Grimes and bassist Slam Stewart, and he played mostly in the trio format for the rest of his life. In his improvisations, Tatum was given to spontaneously inserting entirely new chord progressions, sometimes with a new chord on each beat, into the small space of one or two measures. His reharmonization of pop tunes became a standard practice among modern jazz musicians, horn players, as well as pianists. In rhythmically unpredictable spurts, he often generated lines with notes cascading across each other while weaving in and out of tempo. He died November 5, 1956 in Los Angeles, California from uremia at the age of 47. Now a tune I first heard when Jim Neighbors would sing it before every Indy 500. Indiana is usually played fast too, except the way Jim Neighbors sang it. But Tatum chose a calm, medium tempo, for that permits a happy, improvisatory excursion. This type of number was perhaps best suited to him. The treatment is not declamatory or flashy, and it allows him to slip in a jazz touch between the pretty embroidery to affect telling contrasts. Thank you. 
back home again in Indiana. Composed by James F. Hanley in 1917, recorded July 26, 1940, and released on Decca Records. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with what the heck I'm talking about when I talk about cutting contests. Now, I've covered this topic before, but according to many people, not just this Wikipedia article, we are listening to one of the best cutters there ever was in this episode. A cutting contest was a musical battle between various stride piano players from the 1920s to the 1940s and to a lesser extent in improvisation contests on other jazz instruments during the swing era. Up to the present time, the expression cutting in jazz is sometimes used, sometimes facetiously, to claim a new musician's technically superiority over another. Cutting contests first had a more earnest meaning only among pianists and later existed for their own sake. Originally, to cut another piano player meant to replace them at their job by outperforming them. This serious form of rivalry ended by the 1920s when pianists began acquiring more stable engagements and basic ragtime and fast shout piano evolved into the more improvised stride style, a term that began to be used in the 1920s. Cutting came to mean victory at a prearranged contest. These contests were usually held at Harlem home rent parties, where an entrance fee helped residents pay their rent. In the contests, often one pianist began a tune, then others took turns cutting in, introducing increasingly more complex ideas, changing the key and or tempo, and otherwise trying to outplay and outstyle the previous musicians. The great stride pianist James P. Johnson and his rival Willie the Lion Smith often participated in cutting contests. However, they had so much respect for one another that their contests usually ended in draws and they cut in only for humorous effect. Cutting contests continued into the 1940s. Art Tatum usually won the contests he engaged in, beating out such notable pianists as Fats Waller, Teddy Wilson, Count Basie, Earl, Father Hines, Albert Allens, and many more. Cutting contests also took place between blues musicians. An enduring form of the cutting contest is the trading tradition in jazz improvisation, where two or more musicians alternately play parts of solo choruses. Cutting contests are also common events at tap dance festivals. And if you think about it, rap battles could also be considered a present-day form of the cutting contest. How's it go? Mic drop. <laughs> How High the Moon is a tune that became virtually an anthem of the bebop movement, but in this previously unissued version, Tatum swings it with an exciting intensity. In the first chorus, he presents the melody in a luxuriantly reflective manner and then makes a circus entry at a rapid tempo in, into the second. From that point on, the number becomes a vehicle for a splendid display of wit and dexterity in which his rhythmic power is well illustrated. Thank you. 
And that is How High the Moon, with music by Morgan Lewis, written in 1940. This was recorded September 29, 1949. It was unissued by Capitol Records. Now let's head right into our Franklin Mint bonus cut. And we started out the program with tea, so let's turn things up a notch. Cocktails for Two is played by the trio Tatum, formed in 1943. By this time, he had acquired a following that could not understand what need he, of all pianists, had for a guitarist and bassist. However, the three musicians soon showed new possibilities in instrumentation and scored a tremendous success in Los Angeles. Like Tatum, Slam Stewart had perfect pitch, an effect that led to some friendly arguments. His bowed bass solos, to which he vocalized an octave above, were popular, and that sometimes obscured the value of his strong rhythmic contribution to the trio's performances. Tony Grimes's guitar and the light lyrical sound of its strings complemented the pianist's unique touch attractively, and the beauty of Tatum's touch was in increasingly revealed as recording techniques had improved. Sure, I'll have another. Cocktails for Two, 
written by Arthur Johnston and Sam Kozlow in 1934. That was the Art Tatum Trio with Slam Stewart on bass and voice and Tiny Grimes on guitar. It was recorded in May of 1944 and released on Brunswick Records. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Art Tatum is a delight to listen to. The speed and intricacy in which he plays is just marvelous. And like one of those intros mentioned, you never know which direction he is going to take a tune. And I'll definitely be looking forward to more jazz pianists in my dad's collection. And finally, we won't hear them, but I love the lyrics to this next song. Making Whoopi is a superior standard song of a kind that always formed a major part of Tatum's repertoire. Quite apart from their influence on jazz musicians of all kinds, performances such as Tatum's were at once the envy and inspiration of generations of cocktail pianists. Making Whoopi is another wonderful discovery, another previously unissued masterpiece. It is strange how a song like this, when taken at such an unexpectedly brisk tempo, reveals choral colors probably never noted before. Tatum's unflagging invention and skill are shown here to great advantage.
Makin' Whoopi, composed by Walter Donaldson in 1928. That was recorded on September 29th, 1949, and was unissued by Capitol Records. And there you have more selections from the greatest jazz recordings of all time. So thanks for tuning into Volume 89, Tatum on Keys, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops as we continue Franklin Mint Month for Volume 90, Sax Master Young. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>